Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Happy July 4th, everybody. We'll do a little quick episode today because we don't skip any weekdays here, holiday or otherwise, on Fantasy NBA Today, Sports Ethos presentation. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into any stuff on July 4th. I just hope that wherever you are, you are safe and you're able to find enjoyment today and whatever you may do, barbecuing and so forth and time with family. Well, stuff, not great stuff is happening elsewhere. Again, it's hard, man. It's hard to do a podcast after you read bad news like that, which I realize is a very very small and stupid thing to complain about. Oh, I don't have the gusto to do a fantasy basketball podcast, but we're going to do one, damn it, uh, because this should be a little bit of an escape, both for my brain and for yours. So let us escape into the world of fantasy basketball, the drama-filled world of the NBA, and we still have plenty of things to talk about because we didn't even get to the Malcolm Brogdon trade on Friday's show. And, of course, we've had a couple other things that shook out over the weekend. We had the giant Rudy Gobert trade, which I don't know how much of this stuff we're going to get into today. This is a show where uh, I know how holidays go. Now, anybody listening to this podcast today, those of you that are listening to this show are probably doing it first thing on Tuesday morning before I drop the Tuesday podcast. So thank you to those that are doing it. Obviously, another colossal thank you to everybody that's been listening to the show throughout the offseason. It's been by leaps and bounds, our biggest off-season in listenership ever. And it's not even close. And actually, July 1st, a couple days ago, was our biggest single day in any off-season ever. Which, uh, I don't think that was even free agency day? Yeah, it was. No, no, that was the day after free agency day. That was the That was Friday, headed into the weekend. So... You know, sweet. So whoever of you that are, are hanging in there and, and checking us out here on July 4th, thank you so much for doing so. This is going to be a short one. We do like a 15-20 minute show on holidays. That's kind of the MO for those that haven't been there in the past. Uh, and uh, then we'll move along to the next one. I want to save the Rudy Gobert stuff until tomorrow when we're all kind of settling back into work. It's July 4th hangover day. Many of you will be sitting at work thinking, ah, I'd rather be listening to a podcast, and that maybe will be us. So we'll save the Rudy Gobert stuff until tomorrow. So today, I really only want to talk about two stories from pre-weekend slash weekend. Or at least that's my goal, and maybe... uh. Maybe we'll squeeze some other stuff in here, depending on how time goes. Um, you know, such as extensions or re signings, things of that nature. Actually, yeah, you know what? I I do want to I want to add one more into the mix, but we'll let let's see how the timing goes on it. You can see how well I've planned out this July Fourth show. Uh, let's start with the big one, the one that we should have probably done for the Friday show, but we released it Friday at like nine thirty in the morning, and then the trade came down like fifteen minutes after that, I believe. Or no, that's not true. The Brogdon one happened on Thursday. It was the uh, Gobert one that happened right afterwards. Whatever. Again, doesn't matter. So Malcolm Brogdon got sent to the Boston Celtics, and, you know, pieces ended up going the other way. Daniel Tice, Aaron Neesmith, 
technically, I believe McStauskas, Malik Fitz, Juwan Morgan, and a first are the other stuff in there. But the only guys on that list that actually play any minutes in the NBA are Brogdon, Tice, and Neesmith, who's the younger of them. From the Boston side of things, we can look at this and say, okay, well, what were these guys doing anyway? Meaning, what was Daniel Tice doing after he got brought back? Still feel like Daniel Tice feels like he might end up back on the Celtics after the trade deadline next year again. Uh, All of last year, between the Rockets and the Celtics, Tice played 47 games and he averaged 21 minutes. And most of that, actually, at least in terms of like the minute count, was actually in Houston. With the Celtics, he was only averaging about, I think it was about 18 minutes a ball game. Doesn't really matter what the exact number is. We can pull it up. But suffice it to say, it, it was minimal. Yeah, it was 18 and a half with Boston. I thought I remembered that number. Good for my brain coming through here with a little bit of short-slash-long-term, medium-term memory. He didn't do much with Boston. He didn't do much with Houston. I, I drafted him in the last round in some spots uh, for Houston, thinking, all right, well, what if they do go to the veteran for a while and then hand things to a younger team partway through the season. They basically just abandoned that ship right out of the chute. He played 26 games with the Rockets, uh, averaged only 22 and a half minutes out there anyway. He's not going to Indiana to play a bunch of minutes. Easy peasy. Uh, Aaron Neesmith played 11 and a half minutes a game for the Celtics, and there really isn't... I know that the Pacers are leaning into a rebuild here, but they're actually going to be okay as it is. Now, we still have to wait and see what happens with Miles Turner, but you know they've now unloaded Demonis Sabonis last season and now Malcolm Brogdon, so they've sort of two out of three of the, the bigger-name veterans on that team have already been cast off into the ocean. Will Neesmith play? I doubt it. I really do kind of doubt it. Um, I, like, there's no... Maybe a little bit, but there isn't this this really obvious path to getting in there and chunking out minutes. The Pacers have Buddy Heald, who's going to play a bunch of shooting guard minutes. Tyrese Halliburton is going to soak up almost every single point guard minute on that roster. Uh, as far as the front court goes, slash wings, you've got Chris Duarte. They just re-signed Jalen Smith. They've got Isaiah Jackson, a young guy they're really excited about. Where... I, I don't see the obvious path to where Neesmith gets in there and sees enough minutes to be productive. Now, that said, it's not impossible. Pacers seemingly wanted the first-round pick in this trade. That was probably the most important thing. But at the same time, you know, the, a couple guys came off the books uh, last season. Um, but plenty of guys are still there. O'Shea Brissett is still there. So that's another guy that's sort of like wing front court that's going to be chewing up those minutes. TJ McConnell's contract exists for a while, so if they ended up running to run him at any point at point, that would move Heald up to the three and Halliburton to the two. They drafted, drafted Benedict Matherin. There just isn't an obvious spot. I think they drafted Christian Braun as well, if I'm not mistaken, to slot in Neesmith. It's like, oh, here you go, buddy. Here's, you know, starter-level minutes. Which I think we can probably agree that's what it would take. 
because what we've seen of Neesmith so far in his young NBA career is that he's decent enough floor spacing type, but like the fantasy game is not an obvious big hit. His per 36s are meh, and we don't even really know what extrapolating that would look like if he was in a slightly bigger role on a new team. So I think as far as the players leaving the Celtics and going to Indiana, you can probably just ignore them. I wanted to make sure we were thorough about this, though. It would have been really easy to just look at them and say, yeah, obviously we can ignore these players. But it's important to understand why. And if there's any reason to take a shot on any of those guys. And I think the answer remains no. Tice is not going to see enough minutes in Indiana, not while they're going young. And we already saw what that would have looked like in Houston. And who knows, maybe he ends up getting bought out uh, anyway. Unless it's already happened over the weekend and I just didn't see it. Uh, And then E. Smith is a guy that they'll probably hang on to and kind of kick the tires on. But I don't think there's any huge push to jam him into the lineup. That's That's not the piece. The thing I think we really need to focus on here is what is now, what has Malcolm Brogdon become on Boston? Because in Indiana... He was the floor general. This last season, he only played in 36 ball games because his body breaks down after two weeks every single season, seemingly. But while he was out there, he put up gigantic numbers. Played almost 34 minutes a game, 19 points, 5 boards, 6 assists, a steal, one and a half threes. great free throw shooter, always has been. Field goal percent's been kind of trending down since he's been in a larger, a more feature offensive role outside of Milwaukee. Remember, that's where he started, and he was a... He was a 50-40-90 type guy. But that'll happen when you play alongside Giannis because everybody just goes to him. When five guys are blocking off the key, that means if you're Brogdon, you can just camp out and you're good to go. Malcolm Brogdon on a team without Giannis, you can see it here, more like 45% from the field. His job in Boston is extremely unclear. Boston has... Their main guys. And none of them are going anywhere. Marcus Smart is still going to be there playing big minutes. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Time Lord, Al Horford. Not that those guys are really getting in the way, but that the starting five for the Celtics is basically etched in stone. There is no there is no tool that can get that out other than those guys missing little bits of time individually. Plus, Boston has a, a very productive guard-level player coming off the bench already in Derek White, who was seeing in the mid to high 20s in minutes per ball game, and then actually played really well for the Celtics during the postseason. He had some big explosion games. He had some quieter ones as well. But that's another guy. So there's a little bit of a redundancy here, and I get it. From just a, a personnel standpoint, Malcolm Brogdon is a really nice get for the Boston Celtics. At the same time, he's owed $67 million over this and then the following two seasons. And so that does kind of lock Boston into a lot of money here. And I want to repeat again, I don't have issue with Malcolm Brogdon... As an idea, I have issue with Malcolm Brogdon as what is he on this team? Because Derek White, 
this year and two more years. Marcus Smart this year and three more years. Jalen Brown this year and next year. Jason Tatum, he signed into the next century, seemingly. Robert Williams signed for a while. Al Horford is really the only Celtic, the only key Celtic player coming off the books after this season. And he's not the guy I'm looking at like, oh, well, if Al Horford wasn't there, then surely there's enough space for Malcolm Brogdon to get loose. Yeah, he's a ball handler, orchestrator that can come off the bench for the Celtics. I see no way that he can squeeze himself into the starting lineup. If, you, if he does, that moves Horford to the bench. I would think he would be the closest Celtic to move to the bench. They're not going to move Horford to the five and bench the Time Lord. So I don't really know how this fits for Boston. It's not like when you put two superstars together and like, oh, how does this fit? This is more of a, how does this fit from a fantasy standpoint? Malcolm Brogdon is a guy that at least as he's currently, his, his, this current iteration of Brogdon, whatever that is, like more of a volume guy in Indiana, that's not a guy that can cut fantasy mustard without a whole bunch of touches. Because he's not a good steals guy. He actually doesn't take that many three-pointers. So he's able to float his value with points and assists for the most part. And then you kind of talk about field goal free throw percent. Those basically canceled each other out this year. His positive impact in the free throw number was a little bit better than the negative impact of his field goal attempt. But between the two of them, they leveled off to like a very slight positive. So again, that also means if you remove usage for Brogdon, his value in the percentages combined goes down, especially if you think his shots get better when he goes to a team like the Celtics that has other attainable or players that can acquire, find, create gravity themselves. All of the things that... And, and look, I, you know... The opposite side of that coin is like, who are the guys that can withstand a, la- a, a loss in usage? It's the guys that can do stuff like rebound a bunch, steal or block a bunch. Brogdon, pretty good rebounding point guard, but I think we have to assume his minutes take a substantial hit in Boston. Like, to me, a best-case scenario is like 27 minutes a game. Best case scenario. I, don't, I almost don't think there's a chance he gets beyond that unless someone key on the Celtics goes down for a month or two this coming season. That's how you could see him get 30 minutes a game for a couple months and then average that out with something lower. If everybody's healthy on that team, he's the sixth, seventh man uh, and fighting with Derek White for you know whoever's hotter on any given evening. But, yeah, they'll need his scoring in certain situations, and that's going to be a benefit to them. Like, he does make the Celtics better, but fantasy-wise, you know, this is a guy that, as the lead horse, almost un... like, with minimal competition. Demonis Sabonis was the other usage guy on that Pacers team, so not another guard, a front court guy. Brogdon got all of the last-second shots, he did all of the orchestrating, and he was a top-60 fantasy player in what was basically, like, the perfect opportunity good player on a not very good team get wild get silly top 60 that augurs very poorly for what happens if you remove 20 percent of everything he does if he suddenly becomes a 15 point 
four rebound, five assist player. That doesn't sound like the end of the world, but I would pull assists at a at a faster clip down because of how far he moves down the pecking order. Forget just 20% there. If you take his three-pointers down to like 1.2, steals go down to 0.7, blocks almost non-existent. That's probably not inside the top 100 anymore. 15-4-4 with nothing else is a very boring fantasy player who might squeeze by in certain formats different punt formats or point formats or whatever you might be working on. It's not punt turnover because he doesn't have that many of those. But almost no upside. And so I I loathe what this does to Brogdon's fantasy value. I will at least give him this. He probably plays more than 36 games this year. Move him to a team that's actually competing, that's not tanking down the stretch. There's no reason to rest him the last 10 to 15 games when he was probably healthy enough to go. And instead, you say, all right, well, this dude's going to be injury-prone, but out of an 82-game season, I think we can at least hunt for 60. Ain't good enough, though. Too much name power there. He's going to slide way down boards, and how far, we don't really know. If he's going, if he basically ends up in, like, the undrafted pool, I'd take a stab at him at the very, very end. You know, 12th, 13th, 14th round kind of thing. But other than that, not bothering. Because right now, he's got a roadblock in his way. And someone needs to miss half a season, probably, on the Celtics for Malcolm to get to a full season's worth of fantasy value. And he's injury-prone anyway. So, like, I don't really see the benefit. Why take a risk on a guy? Oh, well, you know, what if this thing clicks? Yeah, what if it clicks? What if he also stays upright? You got everything to worry about there. Hate it. Absolutely hate it. As far as the bigger names back on Indiana go, forget the guys that actually went there from the Celtics, we already know what that team looks like without Malcolm Brogdon because he like he basically didn't play after a certain... He squeezed in there for a couple of games where he didn't really quite have his stroke back, and he was fine. What did he play? Like the some smattering. He played like eight of the team's last 15 games or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was the... They had tanked enough, and so then they let him do a little bit, probably just to prove to other teams that he was still capable of playing. But basically, we know what that team looks like without Brogdon on the floor, other than one key note. And we said his name already, so hopefully you guys were listening earlier in the podcast. TJ McConnell. TJ McConnell was always set to be the fat beneficiary when Brogdon went down, before the Pacers acquired Tyrese Halliburton, who, of course, is going to destroy fantasy leagues this year. But we already kind of knew what Halliburton was without Brogdon because he played a ton of games in Indy without Brogdon. What we haven't really seen is, what is TJ McConnell capable of if he slots back into a more comfortable role? Because remember, Levert's not there anymore either. Two of the team's main ball handlers, basically the two guys that were in front of McConnell, are gone in terms of ball handling. Tyrese Halliburton came in, yes, so you replaced one with another, but Levert and Brogdon were much more likely to shoot, first of all, at the end of their possessions. So McConnell was less likely to actually get the basketball back at any point. And 
know, he's playing hurt on top of the everything else. And we know that TJ can do it in 24 minutes of ball game. He can go for nine points and five and some odd rebound or assists and, you know, one and a half to two steals if he's just all motor guy. And I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. Indiana can lean into the tank all they want, but McConnell's going to be a stabilizing force on that team. And he's a guy you might want to think about at the tail end of drafts. After he kind of came into this season a little out of shape and buried in the depth chart. And you might still run into a little bit of that. But there's just no way that it's anything like what we saw this past season. We'll reassess this as we inch up on opening day, but I do think there is a path there. And they may try to move him, you know, if they're really going full rebuild here, because McConnell has two more seasons and, you know, he's a pretty good contract, actually, for a team that wants kind of that scrappy, always fighting backup point guard. But this is a team that's going to be able to use that type of stuff. They're young. They need somebody to distribute beyond just Halliburton because there's no reason to play Tyrese 35, 36 minutes a game the entire season. Not if you're still kind of trying to lose. You want to cook your young guy. Let TJ get in there. We really don't think he can get to 23, 24 minutes of ball game? You guys might forget this, but if you go back to not this most recent season, but the previous one, McConnell was number 72 per game in 26 minutes a night. He didn't need that. He needed about 22, 23 to get inside the top 100. That was eight and a half rebounds, six and a half assists, about two steals per game. I don't think he's getting, I don't think he probably goes that high, but it's in there. It's wiggling around in there. Sabonis gone, Brogdon gone, Lavert gone. All the guys that wanted to have the basketball are gone. And you could even make the argument that Halliburton, even though he's there, he's not a guy that wants to be ball dominant. I think there's a path. So who's the big winner in all this? Obviously Tyrese Halliburton, but we already knew he was the focal point, the core. I think TJ McConnell is actually a a winner in this, and I would keep an eye on him as we approach opening day. The other thing I definitely wanted to talk about today was that the Thunder waved Isaiah Roby, and I know that's sort of like this weird little footnote in a wild free agency weekend that still hasn't seen anything shake out with the Brooklyn Nets, but that eliminates almost basically like the last competition for Chet Holmgren. Not that like we didn't think the Thunder were going to go that way, but I get this. I think Chet's going to get drafted really, really early this year. But I actually do believe that there's a chance, and this is more so for Games Cap Roto, because they'll go easy on him down the stretch, and, and the Thunder are going to want to lose games for an, at least one more season here. There's a chance he might be that big man that actually exceeds the rookie season hype. It happens once in a blue moon. It happened with Cat. It happened with Anthony Davis. Where the big men, Cat, I think, got drafted at like 45 or 50 his rookie season in my fantasy league. What the hell year was that? I don't remember how long he's been in the NBA. Was that like 2016? No, 2015? Yeah, Cat was drafted in 2015. And he was, uh, 
he went in like around 40 in fantasy leagues and he was he played in all 82 games and he was like end of the first round early second round per game value so there's these guys that come along now obviously for him he was able to do it because he had points boards pretty good block numbers and great percentages in both Holmgren's the kind of guy where, yeah, okay, he's probably not going to get 14 shots a game, so he's not going to do that that Cat did where he put up the actual scoring stats, but you'll see the rebounds, you'll see the blocks, you'll see the field goal percent, you'll see some scoring on a bad team. His free throw is not that bad. And, you know, you guys know me. I'm always downplaying Rooks, but he has a pretty achievable path inside the top 50 on the specialist side of it. So anything beyond that, well, all I'm saying is there ain't much standing in his way. And you know what? We do have time for one more quickie little footnote here, and that is the Blazers. The Blazers re-signed Yusuf Nurkic to a new contract. I think it's a four-year deal. It doesn't actually matter how long it is. Uh... Four-year 70 mil? Yeah. So first of all, that means Drew Eubanks goes back to uh, basically being a, a non-factor, which that's fine. I think we we knew. But it does. it is helpful from the standpoint of now we know the Blazers are definitely going to try to win. I think every, I mean, every move they've made this offseason has indicated they're going to try to win this year. So they're not going to blow up the Dame thing. Uh, sure, he could ask out. That's always on the table. But, you know, they brought in... Uh, they brought in Jeremy Grant. Uh, they brought in Gary Payton. They have some veterans there that they had benched. They re-signed uh, Anthony Simons to a long-term deal, so they're they're gonna they're gonna compete. And the only thing I think you really need to worry about here is, okay, what does that actually mean for Nurk? Who is Nurk at this point? Like, I mean, what is his actual fantasy potential? The answer to that question is honestly a little bit complicated, so maybe I should have saved this Nurk thing for another day, but we're in it now, so what the hell. Yusuf Nurkic has been beyond beat up pretty much since COVID came around. He only played eight seasons, or only played eight games in the actual COVID, or the, the, the season that was shortened by COVID, and that was, that was injury stuff. And he played 37 games the following year and just was totally out of shape and mentally exhausted in a deal with a bunch of family stuff, tragedies, back in Europe. This most recent season, it seemed like he was ready to, to maybe come back with a little bit more force behind it. And then the Blazers went into tank mode. I think this most recent season is a, an okay starting point to figure out what Yusuf Nurkic can be. However... There's one stat from this last year that was extremely anomalous. He shot 53% this last year. He's 50% for his career. That's fine. You know, maybe that drops back to 51 next year. I don't care. He shot one three-pointer a game. That's pretty much where he's been at for three seasons. Free throw percent, 69% this year. Uh, 62, or sorry, 67 for his career. His bubble run where he shot 89%, that was the 1920 year. He played eight games in the bubble with the Blazers. Uh, that was 
that was a huge anomaly. He's not a 90% foul shooter, but maybe you get lucky and maybe he gets into the low 70s this coming season. Rebounds were right on pace with his career mark. Pretty good passer, around three, right on pace. 1.1 steals, right on pace. Wait a minute. 0.6 blocks in 56 games this past season. He could not block a shot to save his life. Do we really think that that is the real Nurk now? Because prior to this, he was about a 1.8 blocks per 36 kind of guy. He's never going to play 36 minutes a ball game, but in his, in his career, he's a 1.2 in 24 minutes per game. So I think we can safely assume that he should be around 1.4 and like 1 to 1.2 at the absolute worst. He had a 1.9 when he came over to Portland way back five years ago. He was 1.4, then a 1.4 again. He was at 2 in the bubble, but again, that's extremely limited sample size. He was even at 1.1 last season when he was way out of shape and mentally unfocused. So 0.6 makes no sense at all, which I think actually helps us a little bit because as everybody goes back to their board this last season, they're going to see Nurk just inside the top 100. And it's going to be this moment of like, well, is this who he is? And I think the answer is no, because if you just double his blocks from this past year, it goes from a negative to a pretty good positive. And he jumps from just inside the top 100 by about three rounds. Even if you left everything else the same, which you probably can, because he only took 10 and a half shots a game, that seems like something he could replicate in another 28-minute-a-game type of season. Just seeing Portland competing, where his backup is Drew Eubanks, and he's fine and all, but he's not really going to be pushing Nurk for minutes in that same way that other big men that they might have brought in potentially could have. It's his job. It's his 27-28 minute a game job. So 15 and 11, three assists, one steal, and over one block, I think should actually be expected. And he should probably be looking at more like 70 range value. I don't know where the hell he gets drafted. If he gets drafted at like 40 or 50, then all of this is for naught. But I do think that people got annoyed by Portland, and so... It feels like that should push Nurkic down the board a little bit. But we shall see. So much for a 15-minute episode, huh? Enjoy the rest of your July 4th, everybody. Have that barbecue. Do what you got to do. Watch the explosions in the sky. And we'll be back tomorrow with a another, I guess. This was a regularly scheduled show. Huh. We'll talk Rudy Gobert tomorrow. That might be the whole episode for all we know. But maybe something else happens overnight. Everybody gets back to their phones. We'll see. I'm Dan Vespers. See you tomorrow.